Our first reading is from Mark chapter 1, reading from verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left him, left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. And he answered, let's go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Our second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians, from chapter 9, verses 16 to 23. It's on page 183. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me, and woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am trusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation, I may make the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of all my rights in the gospel. But though I am free with respect of all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by, that by it I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. This, this phrase uttered by Paul at the conclusion to our reading this morning from his letter to the church in Corinth, has caused much debate amongst those who have tried to understand his motivation and methodology, particularly as they might apply to the missionary endeavors of the church, the efforts to win people for Christ. Does becoming all things to all people constitute a call for relativistic pragmatism, whereby Paul, and by implication all of us, was willing to forego his principles and convictions as long as some are saved? Or is there something else going on here? It's a tricky one, because at the heart of this is the deeper issue of how the ethical perspective of the Christian 
should relate to the ethical stance of the world beyond the Christian community. How does what I as a Christian think is right and wrong relate to what those out there think might be right or wrong? Are we to take our moral stand over and against the world, calling the world to live according to our standards? Or are we to enter the world and risk compromising our high ideals for the sake of making the gospel of Christ heard more widely? The history of the missionary movement is littered with those who have occupied what I might call the imperialist end of this spectrum. And it isn't always pretty. The great global missionary expansion that rode the coattails of European colonisation was one which by and large sought to impose so-called Christian morality by firm persuasion at least and by force if necessary with colonized nations in for example south america being forcibly converted to christ and then required to live accordingly closer to home the western churches current evangelistic efforts often seem to revolve around trying to persuade people that there is something deeply wrong with their current secular worldview, to which only the Church of Christ, of course, has the solution. And so people are required and invited to leave their past behind, to move into a new way of being that is available to them through their faith in Jesus. This may even have been your own experience of what it meant to come to Christ. Well, I think what, what it boils down to is whether we're going to seek to assert any kind of firm difference between what we might call, on the one hand, God's culture and our lived experience, on the other hand, of human culture. Are we going to seek to persuade, cajole, or require those who live in whatever passes for our prevailing culture that they should, ought to, or even must take on a new way of living that we are going to assert is God's preferred culture? It's really a question of whose rules should we live by. Shall we live in obedience to the rules of our dominant culture or according to the rules of some so-called countercultural kingdom of God? And in any case, what is the relationship between these two cultures going to be? How does God's culture relate to human culture? How does human culture relate to God's culture? Do they ever meet? What does this mean when we get down to the practicalities of it? What does it mean to live by God's laws rather than by human laws, if that's what we're going to assert? Do we still have to pay our taxes? Do we still have to drive on the correct side of the road? 
is it okay for us to say we want faith schools that will educate our children according to our beliefs rather than to perhaps the best insights of scientific knowledge and educational philosophy? Living by God's laws, I hear it a lot, it's good Christian speak, but what does it really mean for those of us who have to live in the real world and pay our taxes and drive our cars and send our kids to school? Now, I don't know about you, but I have never liked being told what to do. As a child, I was what my father used to call, frequently, a contrary little what's-it. I am paraphrasing him here, you understand. I can remember that I would deliberately do the precise opposite of whatever it was he was telling me to do, even if I had been just about to do, of my own accord, the very thing that I was now refusing to do. And it wasn't that I was particularly badly behaved, it was just that my motivation came from within rather than from without. And in some ways, I'm still very much like this. I'm much more likely to do something if I've decided that I want to do it than I am because someone is requiring me to do it. And I wonder about you. Where do you sit on this? Are you, like me, something of a rebel within a cause? Or do you prefer being told what to do? Do you respond well to being given a code of rules for how to live that you can keep and get right and so know that you're doing okay? If so, you're not alone. There is great comfort to be found in knowing where you stand on issues because an external voice has told you where you should stand on them. Many of those who are drawn into religious faith are in precisely this category. They're looking for a matrix of how to live. I've often wondered, from my perspective, why those strands of religion that offer very strong answers and very few grey areas are so attractive to highly educated and independent people. And I've come to the conclusion that it's because some people, particularly perhaps those who have to handle great complexity and nuance in their engagement with the world on a daily basis, crave deep down the kind of certainty of belonging and being that a very definitive religious community can offer them. And so people look to the Bible as a rule book for living to be read and followed uncritically. And they look to the church as the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong, telling them how to live well and rightly in a complex and ambiguous world. I had a great example of that just this week here, here in this room. We had a group of about 35 PGCE students. These are people who are training to be RE teachers. So they were all in their early 20s, graduated uh, in whatever degree they've done, and are now training as RE teachers. And uh, I led them on a, a church crawl of Soho. I said if they want the pub crawl of Soho, that'll have to be after hours. The, the church crawl of Soho was introducing them to the diversity of religious witness in this area. And we came back here and had a, had a great discussion for about an hour and a half on different aspects of the Christian faith. And uh, one of the Muslim girls in the group was asking us what we thought of the Bible. And she said... 
given the complexity of the authorship of the Bible, written over so many thousands of years in different languages with com you know, complexities of translation, how can you know that this book tells you what to do to live? And I said, actually, the Bible is not the Christian version of the Quran. And we had a really good discussion about how Muslims view the Quran as this very definitive guidebook for living, and you go to it for the answers. And I was saying, actually, we don't do that in our tradition with the Bible. The Bible is something else. It's a witness to people's wrestling with God. It may be a series of thought experiments about the nature of God, but it's not the rule book by which we live. And yet so many Christians, I think, do the same thing that this young Muslim woman was doing, which is to look at the Bible as if it were a rule book, a handbook for living. To be read and followed uncritically. And they look to the church then to tell them about it. Is it my job to tell you how to live? Do you want me to tell you what you should do in every little moral ambiguity of your life? Do you want me to be as the preacher, the one who says, well, do you need to know how to respond on this ethical issue or that ethical issue? Well, I've been reading the Bible. Let me tell you what to do. Seems some people do. And it's about how God's culture and our culture interact. Where does God's culture hit human culture? And a church that clearly articulates what God's culture looks like over and against the prevailing culture of society is offering a highly attractive proposition. People like to be told what to think and believe and do. I don't, personally, as already established. You tell me what to do, I'll probably do the opposite. But there are many who do like to be told what to do. And the thing is, there are so many voices out there competing for the right to tell us what to do. And it can be utterly overwhelming for us to have to try and choose between them. And so we end up casting around in vain for a basis on which to decide who has the right to tell us what to do and whether we have to do it. From an advertising industry telling us to buy this or not to buy that, to political voices telling us to vote this way and not that way, to moral voices telling us to do this and not to do that, the ability to distinguish right from wrong can become lost to us as we find ourselves unable to work out whether the calls on us are absolute or relative. Where do we go for answers about how to live? Well, many of us will just turn to our friends, to our families, to our social networks, to our faith communities maybe for guidance. The rise of social media has created possibilities for new communities of moral and ethical reinforcement as people are able to establish peer groups across geographical boundaries. The role of Twitter in everything from the Arab Spring of 2010 to the more recent American presidential election shows the power of such virtual communities to transform the geopolitical landscape. And the questions over the ability of big data manipulation of such communities to achieve political objectives is extremely troubling. It seems that people may no longer know instinctively where to turn for their moral compass. The days where everybody in one culture just went 
to the church or to the political ideology, they're, they're past. But people do still need to turn somewhere. None of us live in a vacuum. We're going to get our ethical code from someone. And if it's not some kind of external meta-narrative offered by politics or religion, it's more likely to be from peer pressure or from the moral outrage of the Twitter storm. And the fragmentation of society into mutually reinforcing groups motivated primarily by self-interest lies behind, I think, many of the movements to deconstruct the larger institutions of society that have held sway in recent decades. The Brexit mantra, I want my country back, or possibly, I don't want these Brussels bureaucrats telling me what my money should be spent on or what shape my banana should be. These kinds of narratives have offered a highly compelling voice to many who are seeking new rules to live by and a new world in which to live. Well, now we've got our freedom. I wonder what we're going to do with it. Just this week, I watched Miriam Margulies' Big American Adventure. I don't know if you've seen this. I've missed this, and I'm extremely grateful to Margaret for sending me the link and saying I should watch it. Uh, in this episode, she visited uh, a ranch in Arkansas, uh, very much Trump territory. And she was speaking with the wife of the rancher who lived there about the America First ideology that is driving so much of the domestic and international political agenda of the current administration. And uh, the wife of the rancher said, and it's interesting here in terms of how God's culture and human culture interact, she said, you know, our country was founded on people like us who went to work every day. They left England because they didn't want people telling them what to do. So they come over here and they make the best country in the whole world. And then you have Obama that says we're going to make everybody even. Well, that's not right. If you don't go to work every day, why should you have all the benefits I do? Who has the right to tell anybody else what to do? A bit later in the program, in response to this, the question, how would you like America to change, the leader of an alt-right group, a church pastor named Mike, who is pretty extreme, he believes that Jews, blacks and homosexuals should be neutered, deported or executed accordingly, he replied, well obviously I'd like it to change to be a godly country that enforced God's laws. And here we are back again at the clash between God's culture and our culture. And I honestly think that as Christians we just have to find a better way through this. I think at the moment what we're doing is we're setting up God's culture claiming it as ours and then seeking to impose it on others. And I don't think it's getting us very far. And I think it's playing into a fragmentation of society that is much wider than just the church. But I don't think it's offering anything helpful. So I wonder if this is where Paul can be so helpful to us with his comments to the church in Corinth. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. You see, I am simply not satisfied with a version of Christianity that seeks to exert its own moral and ethical code as normative and absolute in the world, and which then seeks to take enough power to enforce that code on others. I don't believe that God's culture is in competition with human culture at all. 
Certainly not in such a way that we must think of ourselves as Christians in a battle with the world, which we must win in order that people can come to know Christ. I don't think we should seek to create godly countries where people live by God's laws. I think it was a mistake when Constantine tried to do that in the fourth century with the Christianization of Rome. I think it's a mistake when Islamic extremists attempt to do it today with the re-establishment of a caliphate. I think it was a mistake when the settlers left the UK to go over to America to build God's country over there. I think it's a mistake when Pastor Mike wants to do it in America today and then believes he's voting Donald Trump in to do it for him. And I don't believe in the notion of England as a Christian country either. And frankly, I don't think I'd want to live in it if it was. Because the last time England was a properly Christian country, Baptists were persecuted in London. You see, the problem with any kind of Christendom is that when Christians become the absolute legislators of society, they try to write their so-called biblical morality into the national law and then require others to live by it, whether they want to or not, as if this in some way saves or Christianizes the nation. And Paul knew this danger of absolutizing religious belief all too well. Paul had grown up in two very different but closely related worlds. As a Roman citizen, he was raised in a city where the emperor required everyone to worship him, whether they wanted to or not. And as a Jew, he was part of a people who believed that God ruled their country absolutely. His whole life had been lived out in the tension between these two competing religious orthodoxies. And so he says, I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. To the Jews, Paul's a Jew. To those who live under the Jewish law, he's one who lives under the Jewish law. To the pagans who are not under the Jewish law, he is one who is himself outside of the Jewish law. He is neither a Jewish nationalist nor is he an imperial worshipper because he is free from all those demands. And this means, I think, that we too are free from all such compulsions. Where Christians have gone wrong, I think, down the centuries is that we keep on setting up God's culture in opposition to human culture. We create this competing ethical narrative which we set up as the alternative to that which society has constructed. And then we seek to impose our own moral code on others, either by conversion, coercion, or force, in order to try and win the world for Christ. And this isn't what Paul has in mind at all. When we simply seek to replace secular law with our own version of the law of Christ, we just reinvent the wheel. We reconstruct the very thing that Paul's being so scathing about. We rebuild the thing we've just torn down. Paul's great insight is that those who follow Christ have been freed from the law. Full stop. Be it religious law or secular law, we are free. The Ten Commandments are not binding on those who follow Christ any more than any other attempts to codify human behavior are binding on those who are new creations in Christ. 
But, and here's the key thing, Christians are not free to do whatever they like with no thoughts to the consequences. For Paul, God's culture is always definitively and absolutely a culture of love. And it is love made known in the person and example of Jesus. And it is this culture of love which offers the only credible alternative to all other human cultures, which are always definitively and absolutely predicated on violence. There is no vision of human society which does not in some measure depend upon the threat of violence to enforce its requirements. And when Christians seek to rewrite society as God's society, we just end up in the same place of legalism and punishment as all those who've gone before. But if Paul is right, it is not our calling to try and rewrite society. It is our calling to subvert society through love. The message of good news that Christians are to proclaim and embody is a gospel of love. It is an invitation to enter into a new world where the soul-defining absolute is the love of God made known in Christ Jesus. And the key question for Christians, therefore, is not which law they should keep, but how can they live in love? They are free from all laws apart from this, because this is the only ethical absolute, that they should live in love. And this culture of love is one that can take root in and among all other human cultures. We do not need to create a state law of love that we must argue for, depend, defend, or impose upon others. We don't need to try and get our pet bishop in the House of Lords to pass a law of love that we must all keep. Rather, we can live the law of love into being in the midst of whatever culture we find ourselves. So Paul can be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. He can be all things to all people. Because he, this is how he can make known the love of God to those who do not know what it is to live in love. So can I be a Jew to the Jews? Can I be a Muslim to the Muslim? Can I be secular to the secular, Christian to the Christian? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it do to the boundaries we seek to put around ourselves and the relationships that we walk away from or try and defend? Those who have taken it upon themselves to live in the love of God do not enter human culture as a conquering force, seeking power to dominate and impose. Rather, we go to the world as missionaries of Christ to bring to birth the power of transformation from within, to make known the law of love, not to pass it, because it is the law of love that takes root in our lives, that has the capacity to make all things new. Do we really love? Really? 
with no exceptions, do we know what it is to love. If we can just even begin to get a handle on this, our involvement in wider society will be one where we are the yeast in the loaf, the active ingredient that begins to transform the whole, the pinch of salt that seasons the meal. Should Christians seek to become involved in politics? Absolutely yes. The structures of our society need transformation and redemption, and we will have a part to play in the drafting of whatever legislation is coming up for the betterment of the common good. And why shouldn't we? It's great that Graham is not here this morning because he's out canvassing to get re-elected as a Liberal Democrat uh, local councillor. And good for him, and he has my full support, even though I'm not a member of the same party. I think that is absolutely crucial that we should be doing this stuff. And if you want to join me in getting involved in some of the politics that we do through London citizens in a non-party political way, come and talk to me about that. We are in society for the good of all, and it is our calling in society to speak love into places of hurt, to speak peace and reconciliation to places of division and strife. I, Jean, I'm sorry to pick on you, but you, you've been out again recently in Palestine, standing in a violent culture to bring peace. That's what it's about. It is our calling to point to those places where love can be found and to proclaim the blessing of God on them, not to point at them and go, God is not found there. Not everything in wider society is bad. Not everything in it needs redrafting. There is much that is good and godly and worthy of blessing and sanctification in our world. And sometimes our role is to see where God is at work beyond the church and to recognize that we don't have a monopoly on truth. Sometimes it's our role to join our voices in efforts with those who are out working a message of love, even if they look nothing like us and believe nothing like what we believe. Because God is the God of the whole earth, not just our little corner of it. He doesn't need us to defend his rights, he just asks us to make him known. And as Jesus went from place to place, crossing borders and entering towns to proclaim the message of God's love for all, bringing healing and transformation to the hurt and the vulnerable, so we too are called to journey from our own places of security into places where we will not always be welcome in order that the reigning boundaries of power in our world might be challenged in the name of the one who continually transgressed those same boundaries in his time and his place. And we do this not because we're seeking to replace society with our own version of it, but because we believe the good news of the love of God made known in Christ is a gospel for all people and all cultures. Because we believe that in God and through Christ, there is a new creation where all are equally loved. And this means that faith in Christ can have multiple ethical outcomes in the world. I'm going to say that again because it really matters. Faith in Christ can have multiple ethical outcomes in the world. There is sometimes more than one right answer to difficult questions of ethics. As long as they can all be fitted under the umbrella rubric of the love of God.
Tom Wright says, Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you being the person that God has called you to be. And so we take our place in society. We become all things to all people that we might by all means save some. We have taken bread and wine into our bodies. Christ has remembered us. May we remember Christ. May these hands be the hands of Christ in the world and do no violence. And we pray for those who are caught in situations of violence and see no way out. We pray for those who choose violence. We pray for victims. We pray for those who are fearful. May our eyes see those who are overlooked. We pray for those around us who feel unseen. For those who in their need to be noticed behave badly, hurt others, hurt themselves. For those who fade away, hiding. We pray for those parts of ourselves that we overlook. Our strengths, our hurts, our belovedness in you. May our ears listen to those who are unheard. We pray for those who speak up regularly about causes of injustice. And we pray that you will give to them courage to keep going. We pray for those who speak and do not believe they are heard when they try to speak truth in the face of lies. We pray for all who refuse to hear of the possibility of change, of the gift of love. We pray for those who've given up speaking because nobody listens. May our voices be raised for the voiceless. We pray for those whom we can't hear because we speak so much. We pray for those whose views make us uncomfortable and therefore to whom we will not listen. We pray for those whose voices carry great weight in our society. And we pray for those who cannot be heard because they don't know how to say what they need. May our feet take us where Christ leads us. We pray for those who travel unwillingly, 
for those who are refugees, for those who don't know where they're going to go tomorrow. We pray for all who leave home and family and comfort in order to go to help in a whole variety of demanding and difficult places and to bring hope and creativity. And we pray for ourselves in our regular rounds of going about our daily life, that as we go, we will walk in the footsteps of Christ, lovingly, hopefully, openly. May our hearts and minds always be open to your spirit, that we may see possibility and love unflinchingly and take the risks you call us to and discover the life you offer to us. We pray for those whose hearts are broken, for those who mourn, for those who don't know how to face tomorrow. We pray for those whose minds are clouded in confusion and old age and in illness. Lord, remember us. And may we remember you and be your body in the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.